you're not a details person, you probably have. We who are less organized have the tendency to want to get past the details and get to the end of whatever we're pursuing. Quite frankly, that is a misunderstanding of life, that viewpoint that the devil's in the details. What I would say is, God is in the details. Our God is a sovereign God. Our God governs the affairs of men and women, and also He rules over every event in the universe. The sovereignty of God, of all the properties of God, is arguably the most important. Because if there is no sovereignty in God's being, then all the other attributes of God go begging. Let me give you an example. We know the Bible says about God, God is love. Aren't you glad that we have a God who is epitomized by love? Amen? But think for a moment. What if some circumstance would keep God from loving you or from loving me? If He were not sovereign, certainly there would be circumstances that would be a conspiracy against our receiving the love of God. That could apply to any number of, in fact, all of the attributes of our God. Let me mention a couple of things. I could choose dozens of things said in Scripture about the sovereignty of God, but these stand out in my own mind. In the book of Psalm 115, verses 1 and following, the Scripture says, Not to us, O God, not to us, but to your name be glory, because of your loving kindness and because of your truth. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. And then in Psalm 47, 7, the psalmist writes, God is the King of all the earth. That would include all the created universe. We resist the uh, sovereignty of God without exception in this room. We find ourselves opposed to the sovereignty of God. And it's due to the fact that we are of Adam's seed. We are of his race. And Adam, of course, when he sinned in the Garden of Eden, his sin was one which insisted upon his own autonomy. He wanted to rule himself. And so do we. Those of us who have come to know Jesus had to bow the knee before the Lord and recognize that He is indeed the only one to whom we are to give allegiance. But we still wrestle with what the Scriptures call the flesh. That's our selfishness which still resides in our being. And we give in to the flesh because we sense that we know better than God. But we need to be reminded that His ways are not our ways, nor are His thoughts our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are His ways and His thoughts above ours. And by the way, they're perfect, His ways are. Let me give you an illustration of this mentality of man's insistence upon his own autonomy as opposed to God's sovereignty. Mussolini, Benito Mussolini, the dictator, the fascist of Italy who was allied with Adolf Hitler, made this statement. He said, I worship no God except my own sovereign will. That's a strong statement and a bold statement. I wonder what Mussolini would tell us today if he were to stand before us. Because we know the Word of God says that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord. I don't know about you, but I don't want to wait until it's too late to voluntarily bow my knee before the Lord and declare His Lordship in my life and His sovereignty over my life. In our own American history, during the American Revolution, there was one among many sayings which caught on quickly and was said with great enthusiasm. And it was a simple sentence. It simply declared that we have no sovereigns here, meaning in the colonies. And that has 
continued to have an influence on our lives as Americans. We do have a sovereign whether we acknowledge his sovereignty or not. This morning I would like to invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Daniel chapter 4 for what I consider the classic case study in the sovereignty of God as over against the autonomy of man. What I'm going to do this morning, I'm going to walk us through this chapter, beginning with the fourth verse, all the way to the end, making some comments and explaining some things as we go along, and then drawing some applications for our lives as it relates to the sovereignty of God. Daniel chapter 4, beginning with verse 4, I'm reading today from the New American Standard Bible and ask you to follow in whichever version you have with you. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. Nebuchadnezzar at this time was at the height of his glory. And he was chilling. He was kicking back in his palace. Now, Nebuchadnezzar took the throne of Babylon, succeeding his father in 605 B.C., And he sat in that position for decades. You may recall that it was his forces which came and overtook and destroyed Jerusalem because Jerusalem had refused to submit to the rule of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian kingdom. Look at something that is stated here. We see, first of all, in beginning with verse 5, great consternation in the mind of Nebuchadnezzar. I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. Have you ever had such a dream? This was a nightmare, to say the least, for him. And he was puzzled over the meaning of the dream. So he called for consultation with those to whom he looked for understanding about such things as the dream which he had had. Look at verse 6. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, and the word translated magicians, it's probably not the best interpretation. Literally it means the soothsayer priests. It was a group of priests who were men who claimed to have insight into mysterious things that not everyone was privy to. Then he speaks of the conjurers and the Chaldeans. The word translated Chaldeans would be the master astrologers. As we're quickly approaching the time that we celebrate the advent of Christ, the incarnation, we think of the Magi. And the Magi were Chaldeans. They were master astrologers. So you see this great potentate, this emperor of Babylon, this greatest man in the world at that time in terms of power, Nebuchadnezzar, was one who appealed to soothsayer priests under his authority, to the conjurers, to the master authorities, astrologers and the diviners. And they came in and he related the dream to them. But he goes on to say, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. Now, this would have been frustrating to him, but not nearly as frustrating as it would be to them. If you know the book of Daniel, you know that he had another dream and he couldn't figure it out. He called the same group of people in to interpret the dream. And he said, I'm not even going to tell you the dream. And if you can't tell me what it means, you're all going to lose your life. And that would have been frustrating. They had that as a background when they were called in. And I'm sure they grew nervous at the very thought of coming before this great man and interpreting his dream. And then they couldn't. But verse 8 says, but finally Daniel came in before me. Let me stop here just a moment. I wonder, there's no way we will ever know this in this life, and by the time we get to heaven it won't matter. So we'll just have to use our imaginations as to why Daniel was the last one to come in. Maybe he held back, because what we're going to see is 
Nebuchadnezzar's own assessment three times in the fourth chapter of this man is that in him dwelt a spirit of the holy gods. Now, another interpretation and a legitimate one of that phrase, a spirit of the holy gods, would be the spirit of the holy God. The Holy Spirit was in Daniel. And therefore, he could understand these things that no one else could understand. He's the one who gave us the book of Daniel. And in this book, we see great wisdom about present day life, but also things to come. We're not going to explore the things to come today. This particular passage, though, is very relevant to our lives. Look back at verse 8 again. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. That's Nebuchadnezzar's God and in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians. Now remember what a magician is. This here again is a little misleading. A magician is a soothsayer priest. And he was recognized as a man who had a connection with his God at least. That is, Daniel's God. Since I know that the Spirit of the Holy Gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen along with its interpretation. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to see beginning with verse 10, tells him the content of the dream so that he could have a better sense of how to interpret it. So he gives his explanation, that is, Nebuchadnezzar gives the explanation of the events associated with this dream. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit, let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. And let him share with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man. And let a beast mind be given to him. And let seven periods, this means seven years, of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. This tells us the purpose of the dream, to emphasize that the one true God is in fact sovereign over the whole realm of mankind. Nebuchadnezzar continues and bestows it on him whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. So what he's basically saying is God is the one who raises people up and he's the one who puts people down. And as often happens, people who rise to places of prominence in institutions or in families or world politics, people like that have a tendency to become really enamored with their own greatness and their own accomplishment, and they begin to be too big for their own britches. Maybe they have to be too big for those britches to get in those positions to begin with. But God's the one who sets them up, and He's the one who brings them down. The sovereignty of God. Verse 18 says, this is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation. 
inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation. No pressure, Daniel. That's what he's saying. But you are able. He was confident in Daniel. Why? For a spirit of the holy gods is in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. That's why he was confident in him. So now we move to Daniel. We've seen the consternation of Nebuchadnezzar. How he consulted with his core of advisors. Religious advisors, if you will. And then he explains the dream to Daniel. But now Daniel... We're going to hear from Daniel, and he suffered consternation too when he heard this dream. Look at verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. Now, let's stop here just a moment. Notice, he didn't have recurring fear or recurring worries. It bothered him for a while. That's the difference. We who know Christ, when we are confronted with things which are alarming things in the world, things that we encounter in our personal lives, the initial reaction, it's not unspiritual to have a reaction of being appalled at some of these things and being alarmed by some of those things. What is unlike God is to continue to remain in such a state. But we are brought back into reality by remembering that our God is a sovereign God. That was... Daniel's understanding, he'd seen it over and over again in his life, had he not? As he had been taken into exile from his homeland and been subjected to a lot of temptation and trial in his life, but he had passed the test every time. Why? Because he acknowledged the sovereignty of God. God was his king. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, My Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. He's sort of preparing Nebuchadnezzar for the big blow here, isn't he? He's getting him ready. He's showing his allegiance. He's not just buttering Nebuchadnezzar up. He really cared about Nebuchadnezzar. And he was preparing him for what he was about to learn. This shows great courage on the part of Daniel. If it had been me, I probably would have been tempted to sort of hem-haw around and give some other interpretation than the one I really knew to be true. We are sometimes confronted with this. I'm talking about me and you. We are confronted when people have misunderstanding about God and we know what the truth is. And we, for fear that we will be rejected or persecuted by them, what do we do? We tiptoe around the edges of a question rather than going to the truth of God's Word to answer their questions. But Daniel, remember, had a spirit of the holy gods. That was a way in which Nebuchadnezzar saw it, but it was the spirit of the holy God. Just recently, we learned from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, God did not give us a spirit of fear or timidity, but a spirit of what? of power and of love and of self-control. That is summarizes those three words, power, love, self-control. What real courage is, it's not something that's innate to us. It's something that we have received when we receive the Spirit of God into our lives, which enables us to face the challenges such as the one that Daniel faced in this case. Verse 20 we see the interpretation of the dream. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth. That's quite an expression of influence, isn't it? That could be seen all over the earth and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under which the beast of the field dwelt, and whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. It is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, and your dominion, your kingdom, to the end of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it. Yet, leave the stump 
with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods, remember that means seven years, seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon you, Lord the King. Now, I don't need to mention this again, probably, for most of you, but for my sake, I want to emphasize what the Word of God says. This is the decree of whom? The Most High. Is that not a description of the sovereign God? There's only one most, right? Only one best. And God is who reserves that right for himself, and rightly so. Verse 25, that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beast of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. He's hammering home this point. God is the sovereign God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the sovereign God. And He is the one who bestows the realm to whom He wishes. And in that, it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Well, this is like a bad news, good news joke, isn't it? The bad news is you're going to become like an animal. You're going to lose your authority. The good news is, it's going to be returned to you after that seven-year period of time. One would wish that he or she could get inside the mind of Nebuchadnezzar as he began to process all that. And then we hear, in addition to this interpretation, this man Daniel gives an exhortation. He wants to apply the Word of God to this situation, particularly to Nebuchadnezzar. And he does that in verse 27. Imagine this. Speaking to the most powerful man in the world in this manner. Talk about courage. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sin by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, in case there be, may be a prolonging of your prosperity. In other words, maybe God will not follow through with the fulfillment of this dream if you do what I have just said. And that is to repent of your sin and put the Lord where He belongs in your own mind and in your own life. He is the sovereign King, not you. And you see the grace of God In this whole experience, certainly, he was giving an out for Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar becomes a focal point at this point. Daniel, in his interpretation and explanation, his exhortation, all this, of course, referred to Daniel. But now, the spotlight is back on Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 28 says, All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king... Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. So, what did God give Nebuchadnezzar? He gave him some time, didn't he? He gave him opportunity to repent. A lot of people take pot shots at the Old Testament. And they say it's just a bloodbath. It's awful. How can anyone say that the God of the Old Testament is the God we've come to know in Jesus Christ. Well, if you would like to look at a passage in the book of Genesis, chapter 15 with me, this is a very important question that we need to have an answer for. And the Bible gives us the answer in Genesis chapter 15. Remember the land that God gave to Israel. It's called the Promised Land. It was Canaan. It was inhabited by all kinds of ites. The Hittites, the 
Jebusites, it just goes on and on, all these different people, and they were big people. They were giants and they were scary. But God says, I want you to wipe them all out. Let's look at verse 12 of Genesis 15. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for a certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. Here's a prophecy. 400 years from this covenant which God makes with Abram, later to be known as Abraham, the descendants of Abraham are going to be enslaved for 400 years. Did that prophecy come true? It did, just like every promise of God is finally seen in reality and history. It came true when they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. 14 says, But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. That happened too, didn't it? Verse 15 says, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Abraham doesn't have to worry about that. But then verse 16, look at this. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Who were the Amorites? They were the inhabitants of what we call the promised land. That was a general term for all the ites who were living in the promised land. For four generations, 400 years, God gave the inhabitants of Canaan opportunity to repent of their sin. And they didn't. So the whole notion that God is one who is quick to judgment is not a legitimate notion. He gave Nebuchadnezzar another year, as we look back at Daniel chapter 4. And the scripture talks about how Nebuchadnezzar is walking on his palace roof. He's admiring his handiwork. Look at verse 30. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great? which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. He had not learned the lesson of the sovereignty of God. It was about him, wasn't it? Now, we understand, if we know Christ, we understand that Jesus is not our buddy. Jesus is not our lackey. We don't snap our fingers, and He does what we want Him to do. We are His bondservants. We are His slaves, literally is the word that Paul uses, his fondest way of describing himself. And so we understand this, that the Lord is our King. He is our ruler. And look what happens as a result. He's exalting Himself in verses 28 through 30. Then there's this swift, decisive humiliation of the man who had rejected the Word of God through Daniel. Verse 31 says, While the Word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grassy like cattle, and seven periods... Here again, seven years of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes. Now, what is the voice of the Lord coming to him to say? Look, you haven't learned the lesson of God's sovereignty. You're going to learn it now in a big way. Verse 33, immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Perhaps you know a little bit about Howard Hughes. You remember Howard Hughes? I remember reading an expose probably in Time magazine. It's been decades ago now, I suppose. It seems like maybe last year. It's probably been 25 or 30 years ago. How he really occupied a whole Las Vegas, not just a floor, but kind of like a whole suite of floors. 
And he didn't submit to his hair being cut. It was just long. And it was an artist's rendition of the description which the artist had received from an eyewitness. And he didn't cut his fingernails. They just grew and grew and grew. And it's assumed the man was insane. And he probably was insane in that situation. Well, here we see this man, Nebuchadnezzar. He had a condition which is known in psychiatry as lycanthropy. And it is the condition where a person thinks he or she is an animal, chooses the animal that he or she wishes to be, and then behaves like that animal. In the case of Nebuchadnezzar, he chose an ox as the animal he wanted to portray. And he began to eat grass. That's all he would eat. He would just eat grass with the oxen, cattle, out in the field. A great Old Testament scholar of the 20th century, E.K. Harrison, tells of a visit which he made to an institution for the mentally ill in Great Britain in 1947. And he said, lo and behold, he had taught about this book of Daniel before, but lo and behold, he actually saw someone, a young man, who suffered from this very ailment. And he saw him refuse to drink anything but water. He would not go with the other people who were institutionalized there to eat with them. He would simply eat grass. And he got fuller information, of course, from the people who supervised this man. So here we see a man who is diminished. He's not even human in a way because he's acting like an animal. And we see that in Nebuchadnezzar. For seven years this took place. We don't know if he had any consciousness of the promise that had been made to him by God through Daniel that after the seven years that he would be restored. We don't know about that. But let's look at the restoration process beginning with verse 34. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason... And the word translated reason is literally the word knowledge. My reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. And then he gives what he actually said. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. It was not long after Nebuchadnezzar penned these words or spoke these words or both that his kingdom came to an end. Cyrus came and destroyed the Babylonian kingdom of which Nebuchadnezzar had been the emperor. Verse 35 says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? I was so impressed this morning as we begin our time of worship. Many of you had not arrived. All hail the power of Jesus' name was the first song we sang. And I thought, how appropriate for today's message. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown Him Lord of all. We're all going to do that someday. We need to get a head start now. And then, a mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. The great hymn, Ein Festeberg, that Luther penned during the Reformation. That great statement of God being our refuge. And God also being our protector. A bulwark who protects us. What a mighty God we serve. All the music we sang today was oriented toward extolling the sovereignty of God. There was no collaboration, by the way, between me and Mike Rogers in the choosing of those songs, but they were so beautifully played and so marvelously sung by us as we honored the Lord. And the Scripture goes on to say that our God is this kind of God. In verse 36, At that time my reason returned to me, And my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. You know, he was a different ruler. Quite different. 
We see this in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Now compare that if we go back and look at verse 30. Seven years earlier, the king reflected and says, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? The autonomy of man. We live in a man-centered world. It is probably no more prominent than in this nation. We are so eaten up with ourselves. We are so self-centered. Just like Nebuchadnezzar was. Just like people have been since the fall of Adam into sin. But what we need to realize is all such autonomy leads to a dead end. It's a cul-de-sac. Spiritually and physically and every other way. Friedrich Nietzsche. Some of you know Nietzsche. He was a man who was an atheist. He was a great spokesman against God and against Christ. One of his works was called Ubermensch, the Superman, actually. And he talked about how man should rise up and do everything he can to reach the pinnacle of humanity. It's all upon the man, the individual, the woman or the man to do that. And he extolled the importance of people making up their own values. He's the godfather of a lot of what goes on in our culture, for sure. Do you know how he ended his life? He ended his life in an insane asylum. He went crazy. That's what happens when people do not acknowledge the glory of God and the sovereignty of God. The best way to avoid that kind of end is to really have that kind of relationship. To God. We see in the restoration process, this is a great conversion, by the way. I expect Nebuchadnezzar will be in heaven. I'm not the one who has the final say-so on that, of course, and you can disagree. I expect to see him there. I mean, if there ever is a description of someone submitting to the Lordship of God, I think we have one here in this passage. His eyes were raised heavenward, not earthward, as he had done for all those years of lycanthropic behavior, acting like an animal. This reminds me of the, one of the verses we looked at as part of the passage a few Sundays ago from Colossians 3. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth. And he became a man like that. He transitioned. And as a result, he was expressing a newfound sense of dependence. And he was strongly suggesting that he was placing his trust in God by raising his eyes to heaven. And then he praised the Lord. It's phenomenal, isn't it, to think about? Here's some lessons we can draw from this great description of a man who was autonomous, who was reduced by God, and then rose from the ashes, as it were, and became a tool in God's hands once more. The first thing we see is we are to go to Scripture for solution to our fears, our worries, and our problems. Not the soothsayers. We're not all that unlike Nebuchadnezzar. There are astrologers today, right? There are all kinds of soothsayers. Just turn on TV. Anytime throughout the day, you've got soothsayers. They have all the answers. But none of them really has the answer unless he or she is rooting his or her advice in the Word of God. So, when you are worried, fearful, like Nebuchadnezzar was, he finally got to the right source, didn't he? He got to the man in whom the Spirit of the Holy God's dwelt. He didn't quite understand. It was the Holy Spirit of God who indwelt Daniel and gave him the capacity to give the kind of advice he did, in fact, give. And it all came true. So, we are wise to be men and women who submit ourselves to the Word of God if we're going to make hay while the sun shines, as it were, in this life. Here's a second lesson. Seize the day. Don't delay. We don't know what would have happened if Nebuchadnezzar had seized the day. We can 
make a pretty good educated guess. He wouldn't have had all this to go through. Seize the day. Don't delay. Here's a third one. Just by way of remembering, pride comes before fall. That's what Solomon writes in Proverbs 16, 18. Pride comes before fall. And then we're to humble ourselves. The Bible calls for this. James calls for it in James 4. Peter calls for this in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that in due time He may exalt you. God opposes the proud is what both James and Peter said. Do you want God as your opponent? How's that going to turn out? It's not going to be a good ending, is it? God will brook no rival. He will not allow you or me to exert our own self-will over against His without His disciplining us. And discipline is good, isn't it? You might not think it's good, but it is. The Lord disciplines us. Hopefully it will not be as severe as the discipline that Nebuchadnezzar underwent. But if it brings us to a place of recognizing the sovereignty of God instead of exercising our own autonomy, it would be worth it. Discipline lasts until the lesson is learned. It lasted seven years for this man. And he learned it. How do we know he learned it? Because he looked heavenward. And he acknowledged the sovereignty of God. He was converted marvelously. Well, here's what we need to do. By humbling ourselves, what are we really doing? We're trusting in the Lord, aren't we? With all our heart. And leaning not on our own understanding. We're saying, in all our ways, we want to acknowledge Him. All our ways, not just some of our ways. And the word that Solomon chooses for trust is the most frequently used Hebrew word, which is translated in our English Bibles by trust. Far and away, the most often used. And it depicts this. It was used to describe a general who had a conquered enemy standing before him. And the conquered enemy bows before the individual surrenders his life to this conquering general. It was also used to describe a slave who bowed herself before the mistress in her life. And it was a voluntary sort of bowing, a not only willful but joyful bowing. So it's the idea of surrendering but also submitting to the Lord. This is the biggest lesson we can learn from this whole passage today. That we're to submit to the Lord. The Bible says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Another lesson is praise God when struggling with depression. That's a place to go first when you're feeling blue. Because what it does, it takes your eyes off of yourself and puts them on God. And all of our problems, I mean, I don't know a human being alive, if you spent too much time thinking about yourself and looking at how troubled you might be and what lack there is in you, you can't help but get a little blue if not downright depressed. So what we're to do is to fix our eyes on the Lord. Jesus. And look to Him. It sounds really mystical. It seems like pie in the sky. But don't knock it until you've tried it. It will set you free. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 says, Through Him, through Jesus, let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess His name. Well, there are great blessings in the sovereignty of God. Comfort in trials. Also encouragement and joy in our moments of insecurity. It gives us a deep sense of security. If God is for us, we read, who is against us? From Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulations, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or the sword? Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor any other created thing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Wow. That's Jesus, our Lord. And we need to relate to Him. I'm going to share this story in closing. It's told by Ravi Zacharias in his book on evil. He tells the story of a friend of his who had served as his interpreter in the early 1970s in Vietnam. Ravi was a young evangelist, and this interpreter went with him everywhere he went. He spoke excellent English, and you would know he spoke excellent Vietnamese. He was fluent in French as well. And he was a godly young man. They both were young men in their early 20s. When Ravi left in 1971, he said goodbye to his friend Hen Pham, was his name. And he said he didn't know if he'd ever see him again. And not too long after he left, Saigon fell. And so he lost contact with the man. In 1988, 17 years later, Ravi Zacharias received a call. And the way in which the person on the other end of the line greeted him was... Brother Ravi. And he said immediately he recognized the name. It was this cohort of his who had helped him with the preaching of the gospel to the people there. And after they exchanged a few pleasantries, he asked him, how's it gone with you these 17 years? And then he began to spin a tale that seemed so far-fetched it probably doesn't sound real. This man was arrested because of his sympathies with Western people, especially Christians. He was put in a concentration camp. In that camp, there was nothing but constant propagandizing. There was nothing that was there to be read in English. There certainly were no Bibles to be used by the people who were interned there. And it was something where day in and day out, they were hammered with the propaganda that they were deceived by the West and what... Mark said that religion is the opiate of the people, was pronounced. And he said, one day he said, Lord, maybe I have been deceived. You aren't real. I'm not ever going to talk to you again. He made a vow one night before he went to bed. The next morning he got up and he had the unenviable task that all the people there eventually received, and that was to clean out the latrines of the officers. Boy, I can't imagine that. No running water. He said he went and he began to clean out a can. And when he did, he recognized that the officer who had used this piece of paper, it was actually something written in English. He didn't have time to read it. But he was so intent on reading something in English again, he quickly tried to wash it off a little bit and put it in his pocket. He worked all day, got back into his Barrett that evening got in his bed with the mosquito net over it. He had somehow managed to get a little pocket light, flashlight, and he could hardly wait to read it. And do you know what it was? It's the passage which Mike Baker read out of Romans 8. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. That man broke into tears. The sovereignty of God. He was in that prison because God allowed him to be in that prison. And God wanted to affirm to him when he was on the brink of jettisoning jettisoning everything, just getting rid of this whole Christianity gig. And he was renewed in his faith. And he did the unthinkable. He began to volunteer every day for latrine duty. And it seemed that this man, this officer who was using the Bible for toilet paper, was continuing to use it every day. And he was able to retrieve almost the entire Bible over the course of time. And God blessed him through that and he used it to help others. He was released. And upon release, he was intent also about getting out of the country. And so he began to work with others who wanted to leave. And he made five attempts to build a boat to re- to leave, but everyone was botched. He had 53 people who were going to go with him on this trip. And the night before 
they were finally going to set sail for Thailand, there was a knock at the door. When he opened it, his heart almost leapt out of his throat because there were four soldiers there representing the communist government, the Viet Cong. And they said, we hear that you are building a boat to escape. Is that true? And he thought a moment. He says, oh no, I'm not doing that. You're mistaken. They kept pressing him and he was convincing enough that they believed him. And when they left, he was under immediate conviction. The Lord said to his heart, said, don't you believe in my sovereignty? You have a history with me delivering you. Don't you believe? And he said, well, Lord, I didn't act like it. But if you'll give me another chance, Lord, bring those same four men back. And if I have an opportunity to tell them the truth, I'm going to tell the truth, thinking that would never happen. Well, in a matter of a few days, guess who showed up? The same four. They say, do you have a boat? And he said, yes, and there are 53 other people who are going with me. He just told the truth. And to his amazement, the four men said, we're going with you. So there were 58 people in the boat. We're going with you. And as they set sail from Vietnam under the cover of night, and they secreted away, they met a ferocious storm. The boat was already overloading, overloaded, so it began to take on water. And this is what Hen Pham prayed to the Lord. He got down on his face in the bottom of the boat, and he said, God, have you brought us here to die? And then the four men who were the enemy... They were men who were expert sailors. There was no other sailor on the boat. He didn't know that. They hadn't told him that. And it was because of their presence on the boat that they made it safely to freedom. Look, our God is a sovereign God. If you don't know Him as your sovereign, you are playing with fire, literally. And the Lord would call each of us today to deepen our devotion. There's not anyone in this room who could not deepen his or her devotion to the Lordship of Christ. And ask Jesus to really be your Lord, not just something we say, remembering the words of Jesus when He said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Let's pray. Father, we come to You today. We thank You for this great passage on Your sovereignty. And Lord, please help each of us to be men and women who are committed to Your sovereignty. If you've never made Christ Your Lord, this is a great day to begin. A great way to begin is to respond to the Word of God that we've looked at today. Humble yourself under His mighty hand that in due time He may exalt you Enter into the joy of His salvation by trusting in Him alone for your life.